Antarctica is the highest, driest, coldest, windiest, and emptiest continent on Earth. Every year, more than 400 scientists venture there to study everything from astronomy to microbiology. But they can't do it alone. It takes a small army of support staff to keep them all safe and fully operational. The Antarctic Sun podcast is a behind-the-scenes look at what it takes for the National Science Foundation to maintain the research stations and vessels that support ongoing science in the harshest continent at the bottom of the planet. This episode, the field support and training team. No one lives in Antarctica for a reason. It's an utterly inhospitable place. It's bitterly cold, and the landscape is often fraught with hazards. And for researchers to do science in such a remote and treacherous place, safety has to be a top priority. Our first thing is always safety, so we start really early in the process. This is Megan Walker, the field area manager for the U.S. Antarctic Program. Field safety for us and field is everyone's everyone's job and everyone's responsibility. There isn't one specific department or supervisor that holds it. We have lots of conversations involving everyone discussing it in depth. Hundreds of scientists from across the country travel to Antarctica every year. Making sure they can complete their work safely is the top priority for the field support and training team, known as FS&T. They're the experts on working in the harsh Antarctic environment and are right there from the beginning to take a scientist's proposed research plan and craft it into something workable and safe. The first thing is that they're down here to do science, and so that's the priority. And oftentimes the field plan is kind of the secondary part to it, which is where our focus is. So we need to get them on the phone and start talking about what exactly are you doing in the field. Months before any researchers set foot on the continent, Megan and her team start out by taking a close look at what each science team is proposing. I first get to look at them as soon as they make it through initial proposal reviews. We look at them right away. We start to identify locations, start pulling imagery from PGC, start looking at um, any historical knowledge we have of the area. PGC, the Polar Geospatial Center, supplies detailed maps and satellite images of the areas scientists are proposing to visit. We're looking at the imagery, which is a huge thing. The last five years, what we've been able to do with imagery has expanded to an incredible degree. Super high-res stuff. We can We have really great ability to see... Um, if we think it's a safe safe location or not from just that point, which is advanced, we've been able to do. Now, because no one lives in Antarctica, a continent the size of the continental United States and Mexico combined, knowing what an area is like before traveling there can be tricky. You know, satellite images are tremendously helpful and better than they've ever been, but there are limits to what they can tell us. Ben Atkinson, the field training supervisor, explains. Because a lot of times the only resources before a science group gets down here are satellite images and, in some cases, previous word of mouth of people that have been in that location doing science. But if there was no previous experience in that location, you can only tell so much from a satellite image. Once FST starts to get a feel for the area that a science team wants to travel to, planners start figuring out what kind of support those researchers might need. Depending on the type of terrain it is, either, yeah, you're good to go on your own, or no, actually, this is technical terrain. We're pl- you need to have some type of technical person with you. This field safety coordinator, sometimes called a mountaineer, is there with the science team the whole time they're out in the field. They're the hands-on experts whose job is to ensure everyone stays safe, even if the researchers themselves already know their way around the great outdoors pretty well, because there's more than just the harsh environment they have to be savvy about. It's definitely a different environment. Lots of these lots of these individuals have tons of outdoor experience and backpacking and whatnot. But as you know, Antarctica is not like any other place on Earth. If you haven't been here before, we're a little bit more concerned about making sure we set you up for success and you have someone who knows the location, types of anchor, how we operate within our systems as far as um, our safety net and the aircraft. These safety discussions continue once the science team reaches the station and before they head out into the field. Once individuals arrive on station, we take that to the next step. 
uh, where we're sitting down with the entire team, going through their full plan, making sure that we haven't missed any details. And as soon as the plan changes, everyone circles back and reevaluates to make sure we're still tracking where we want to go. Final preparations for the science team can be intense, but it's so everyone involved has the latest, most complete information about what the field plan is. We ask them to fill out some very specific questions as far as who do you have, what other skill sets, where are you going, what's your put-in plan, what are you planning on bringing. We receive that back. Um, my field support supervisor, Bija Sass, and often the SAR supervisor, John Loomis, sit down with them, and they go through all the questions, try to get a better idea of exactly what's happening, making sure that we're on the same page. The main point of this is so that if we have to respond with the SAR team, we know exactly what's going on. We know what gear they have. We know what channel they've been using on their comms. We know all of those details, and it's we're much more well-prepared in that situation. SAR, the search and rescue team, is also operated through FS&T. And they're mobilized if necessary in an emergency. Of course, the hope is that they don't have to be called out because of the months of preparations the science teams go through. We also send them through, depending on where they're going and who they are, through various different field training courses. Just about every science group that arrives on station can count on a week straight of different kinds of safety trainings, depending on what they're doing and where they're going. And we teach all the field safety classes for anyone leaving McMurdo. Everyone who goes out into the field has to go through an array of different trainings. Experienced scientists and support staff who have been doing field work for ages have to go through the same classes every year that someone brand new to the ice would. So there's some people that come down here that have really never seen snow before. So... This is a building block for them to safely be outside of McMurdo in places where there aren't many resources. They could be dropped off by a helicopter way out in the dry valleys, and all they have with them is a survival bag. Or they're driving out on the sea ice or somewhere out on the ice shelf, and again, all they have with them is a survival bag. In addition to the participants issued warm clothing, the survival bags are one of the most important pieces of safety equipment. Anytime someone leaves the safe confines of the station, they have to have a survival bag in tow, even if they are pretty bulky. It's a bag that's about three feet by two feet by two feet, and it holds everything that you would need to stay alive for three days. So each bag is good for two people for three days. It has a stove, a tent, sleeping bags, sleeping pads, and then some food to, to give you the calories that you need to stay warm for those few days. That's a lot of technical equipment, which is why it's a big part of the Antarctic Field Safety Course. So the main course, the AFS, the Antarctic Field Safety Course, teaches you a little bit about risk management down here in Antarctica, emphasizing how remote of an environment we are in. For us, the first thing is risk management. We want that to be the main thing people get out. We want to learn how to manage our risk and not put ourselves in the situation where we'd ever actually need to use the survival bag. It also discusses ways to prevent cold injuries, frostbite, and hypothermia. And then we go over the parts and pieces of a survival bag, the tents, the stoves, everything that's in there that's going to keep you alive if a storm hits or if for some reason the helicopter is not able to come back and get you that day. I sat in on one of these classes led by Dennis Haskell to get an idea of what kind of skills and concepts one needs to know when operating in a remote area. You can imagine Antarctica, we're out there, right? Sometimes in McMurdo it feels like we're front country, we're in this town, everything's chill and controlled, right? But we do need to remember that Antarctica is, you know, the most remote continent on the planet. And so um, all of our risk management has to be a bit more um, controlled. Right? We need to be a, a little more um, conservative in our decision-making. The course covers a lot, ranging from simple things like the need to always travel with a buddy and to always carry a radio with you, to recognizing the first signs of hypothermia and how to light a fire in a camp stove. 
So the, what we're going to do today is check out some uh, equipment that can make us safe and then prevent us actually falling. There's also more advanced classes for anyone who's camping in independent uh, tent structures locations. They would go through a deep field shakedown or a near field shakedown depending on their terrain ice or rock. We also offer glacial travel crevasse rescue classes for anyone who's working in technical terrain. And of course, at that point, you'd have to have a mountaineer or a field safety coordinator with you. GPS classes, altitude classes. We really look at everything they're going to and making sure that we give them all the skills needed prior. Um, I like to think of it as all of these courses as preventative search and rescue. This is Nick Jaguer, a field safety coordinator. You know, we're trying to educate people, give them some risk management tools, give them some knowledge so that when they go do go out into the field, they're making conservative decisions and they've got the skills to, to deal with whatever situation they're getting put into. There's kind of two levels to the class. On the one hand, there's the rote survival skills that people need to know in an emergency. But on another level, it's teaching people how to think about risk in order to avoid it in the first place. So instilling that kind of mindset into people... Um, I think is is actually more important than than the skills because skills are easy to teach. It's the decision making stuff that's a little more difficult, um, and that's one of the reasons why we often will accompany um, a science group because we're an independent set of eyes, not super focused on the science, um, who are able to um, sort of keep our heads up, let them do their work, but we've got an eye on kind of the the safety side of things. When a research team travels to a remote region, they'll almost always take with them a field safety coordinator, whose job it is to stay vigilant and keep them safe. So a lot of it is really, really simple, really basic stuff that super-focused field groups just need a little reminder every now and then. Um, it's not always the super dramatic technical stuff of you know putting on ropes and rappelling over ice cliffs or things like that. It can be as simple as the occasional friendly reminder to drink water or apply sunscreen, but there's a lot more to it as well. Um, and then in the field, the, the, the mountaineer is basically heads up, looking around, keeping an eye on the weather, keeping an eye on the terrain, and uh, going into mountain guide mode when we need to, to rope, rope people up, um, take people across crevasse fields, or maybe just say, hey, maybe there's a, a better place to collect the data that you need. Let's not go into that terrain because it's a little bit more than we want to take on, but is there somewhere else that would get the data without exposing us to so much risk? And then looking out for things that folks might not always think about, like, you know, sure, the terrain looks safe, but what's above us? Is there an ice fall hazard? Is there a rock fall hazard? Um, and just mitigating those. Um, anything bad went down, there's somebody there with a search and rescue background to help help get the coordination of the response rolling. Um, that would be supplemented from uh, folks here in McMurdo. We'll take a closer look at what happens in emergency search and rescue situations in a future podcast. And it's also important to remember that potentially hazardous terrain isn't someplace far away from the station. It's all around. In fact, immediately next to McMurdo Station is some potentially very hazardous terrain, the sea ice. Yeah, so it's it's crazy when you come to McMurdo and you look offshore, you look across to the continent, it just looks like you're looking across a giant snow field, but it's frozen ocean, right? And in places several thousands several thousand feet worth of worth of ocean underneath you. And we're driving, you know, fairly large equipment. Um, sometimes it's just snow machines, but sometimes it's piston bullies or haglands. It's ice that freezes over winter up to several feet thick. 
and under the best of conditions, massive forklifts can drive over it with no problem. But those conditions change dramatically over the summer season, and the field safety team keeps tabs on exactly what it's doing. So there's a variety of science projects that go on on the sea ice, but our part in that is flagging safe sea ice routes, finding safe crack crossings, and then monitoring that throughout the season. And we go out there every week, we measure ice thickness, and then we measure the crack crossings where our flagged routes cross the cracks to make sure they're still safe for all these vehicles to cross those. What makes the sea ice so challenging is just how dynamic it is. Um, the sea ice changes from day to day, you know, just because of the tidal exchange here, just because of the nature of sea ice. So even with an established route that's on the ice, um, you can't just blast off there and drive around as if it's a road because cracks may have opened. Um, there may be new seal holes in the sea ice that you need to worry about. At the beginning of summer, when the ice is approaching its thickest, Teams of field support staff will take snowmobiles to flag routes across the sea ice to a number of nearby spots the researchers need to access. So early, early in the season, it's, we're try, we'll try to keep flag lines as straight as possible to minimize the chance of getting lost and getting off those flag lines. And then when we come to a crack, we'll find the narrowest spot on that crack to make the crossing. And then we'll drill multiple holes across that crack to check the ice thickness to see if the ice in the center of that crack, if the thinnest ice, is thick enough for that specific vehicle to cross. And so from traveling the routes and having a really keen eye for what, what to look for in terms of hazards, um, you can suss out like where are the cracks, you dig them out, drill a bunch of holes in the sea ice, measure the ice thicknesses, and then we, we monitor those hazards throughout the season and publish a, a report every two weeks that's got maps and photos and tips on traveling safely, um, along with the basics of, okay, these are where that, the known hazards are and this is how you should deal with them. Um, we set up monitoring stations where we can keep track of whether cracks are opening or closing, um, and we put in temperature probes in the sea ice to, uh, to figure out how, how cold the sea ice is, which correlates with how strong the sea ice is. And based on that, we've got parameters for how much sea ice you need to safely drive a particular vehicle over the, the frozen ocean. I went out with Mitch Berez and Philippe Wheelock to investigate one crack that opened up close to a road that leads from the ice shelf to McMurdo Station. Mitch explains. So right now we're at the uh, Scott Base transition on the roadway between the ice shelf and the main island. And a couple of feelies found a big crack out here before. It's a tidal crack, so sea ice that kind of fluctuates with the tides and opens and closes. Um, this guy right now is maybe two to three feet wide at its widest and deeper than six feet. But we're just trying to figure out where the safe place is that a vehicle could drive across if there is a safe place. And then marking this off so that if there is foot traffic around here with the fuelies working on the fuel line, um, just making sure they don't punch a foot through. It's not a gigantic crack, but it's definitely big enough that they want to clearly mark it off so no one gets too close. I think the next step is to start flagging it out and um, we take black flags to mark where the hazards are. So yeah, marking out where the dangerous spots are and maybe trying to find a spot where we can either have people cross over it or find a spot where it might be a likely spot that people could bulldoze and kind of pack it in and temporarily um, mediate it. 
They grab a pile of bamboo poles with black flags at their end. Good Should work. I get the drill now? I don't know if we'll need the drill in this. Some of it, this stuff is like polished. But uh, yeah, whatever, man. We pull these green flags. And then, what were you thinking? Maybe just <laughs> black flags going right over top of it? Yeah. So I don't think we really need to have, it's narrow enough that we don't need flags on either side of it running yeah, along. So if we just have that. an X going over the top, yeah. Like that? Yeah, that'll do the work. That'll stop people from driving here. They set about scouting out the edges of the crack and sticking poles into the ice, making X's over it. It's pretty clear to anyone walking by what this means. Danger, stay away. Field safety is everyone's responsibility within the field department and outside of it. We really want that, that collective feedback into it. It starts really early on and we're constantly thinking about it and requires everyone's involvement from the heavy equipment operator in town out to John Lumiere, our supervisor. The FS&T team does a tremendous job keeping people safe and out of danger. But the unpredictable does occasionally happen. In the next edition of the Antarctic Sun podcast, we'll take a closer look at the other side of field safety, search and rescue. But that's all for this episode of the Antarctic Sun podcast. Stay tuned for more. I'll be bringing you more behind-the-scenes looks at how the National Science Foundation gets science done at the bottom of the world. And check out our website at antarcticsun.usap.gov for more news and science from the frozen continent. Thanks for listening.